You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode two. Contemporary American evangelicalism is suffering from an identity crisis and a lot of bad press. In her new book, The Evangelical Imagination, acclaimed author Karen Swallow Pryor examines evangelical history, both good and bad. By analyzing the literature, art, and popular culture that has surrounded evangelicalism, she unpacks some of the movement's most deeply held concepts, ideas, values, and practices to consider what is Christian rather than merely cultural. Karen's book goes beyond evangelicalism to show us all how we might be influenced by images, stories, and metaphors in ways we cannot always see. Today on the podcast, Karen joins me to discuss the role our imagination plays in creating the identity of a culture and what role we as artists and creatives play in healing cultural fractures by introducing new images and new metaphors to rebuild the broken bridges. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is my interview with professor and writer, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I do a lot of podcasts, but I've actually been looking forward to this one for a long time. Actually, I think a couple of years because I think we had one scheduled and it got postponed or canceled. So I'm actually really pretty excited. So thank you. As am I. And it just happens to be that you've got this incredible new book coming out. And I was telling you before the show, a lot of what you're talking about in the book, I think it dovetails right in with where we are in this season of the podcast. And so, hey, I guess all things work together, right? We've got, we've got the conversation happening at the perfect time. Yes. <laughs> Well, why don't we dive right into this? Tell me about this new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Okay, I would love to tell you about the book, and I want to say something first for anyone who might be out there looking at or if you've got the cover posted or something. The cover is ironic. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. want to put that out there because the cover is actually kind of kitschy and ugly. And I've had a few people approach me because they know that I actually, the aesthetics matter to me and I love mm-hmm. beauty and I actually even teach graduate courses on aesthetics and so forth. And a, a close friend contacted me recently. It was like, what happened to the cover? And I'm like, it's ironic. So, um, oh, no, I, hey, let me comment then. The cover is awesome. Oh, I, thank you. I, no, <laughs> I loved the cover. And in some, you know, strange way, it harkens back to some Andy Warhol or some pop art kind of thank overtones you. to me, you know? And it's like, thank I totally you. get it. Okay, I love the good, cover. Good, good. Because I did tell this friend who's very smart and, and knows me well. And I was a little surprised he didn't get it. I'm like, well, other people tell me they're obsessed with it and they can just love it, oh, yeah. but they get it. So, th- so I guess, yeah, we're kindred <laughs> spirits here. So, yes. So, the cover, yeah, the pop art in the 70s, sort of 19th century <laughs> aesthetic that it has draws on what 
you know, really it's 300 years of evangelical history that I cover here. Wow. And what I'm talking about in the book is I'm, I'm drawing on Charles Taylor's idea of the social imaginary. Charles Taylor is most famous for his, um, you know, 900 page book called A Secular Age, but he wrote another book called Modern Social Imaginaries where, you know, he defines a social imaginary as a collective pool of, of precognitive images, metaphors, and stories that kind of drive our, our conscious ideas and desires um, and thoughts, but they're underneath the surface and we don't always know that they're there. And so, be- you know, I am an evangelical. I've done a lot of research in the history of evangelicalism, but for anyone who's paid any attention at all, at all, you know that that word has been, you know, kind of controversial, <laughs> triggering in a lot of headlines and lots of confusion and chaos around it. And so I just wanted to kind of say, hey, this is, you know, uh, there actually, and there also are books being written about evangelicalism from a historical point of view, sociological point of view, all of these things. But I wanted to say, look, there's all, imagination is what drives it all. Our art, our literature, Mm -hmm. our little songs, our, you know, cheap art we put on the walls, all of those things are part of it. And what can they, why are they the way they are, good or bad? Mm -hmm. And what can they teach us about who we are? And what can we learn about the future from these things? And that's really what I try to do in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah, just a small task, just, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I would love to hear you comment on, it comes from your book, the first chapter titled Made in His Image, Imagination, Imaginaries, and Evangelicalisms. The opening of this chapter, you write, many of us associate imagination with children's playtime, creative problem solving, and hobbits. <laughs> But I think that there's a little more to the imagination and how it shapes us as individuals as well as how it shapes us in culture. And so talk to me about the role imagination has in shaping us. Okay, yeah. So when I open that, the the chapter that way, I'm thinking of, you know, we almost have a binary way of thinking about imagination in contemporary culture. They're the people who think, oh, I'm just not very imaginative. I'm, you know, I I don't get it. That's just for children or, you know, it's just something they don't get. And then we have people who are very enamored with the imagination and, and creativity. And, and, and that's wonderful. But we are all imaginative, whether we realize it or mm-hmm. not. We, we are yes. creatures of imagination and we are using our imaginations, whether we think about it that way or not. I mean, even math is imaginative, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, so, they, so they tell me. I'll um, take your word for yeah. it. <laughs> uh, but it, real, it truly is. And so, so we are, are beings who are, I mean, if you think about it, we're the only creatures who really have imaginations as we mm-hmm. are talking about it now. And so it's part of what it means to be human. And so it makes sense that the images that we have in our own minds, the the visions and stories and metaphors we use in our language or in, in the way we solve problems, th- those are all part of the imagination. So it makes sense that our culture and our communities and our traditions would be formed as much, if not more, than the, by the imagination than anything else. And where I make the connection to Taylor, as I mentioned before, is that, you know, we also tend to think of imagination as a very individual thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. We Americans, we're individualists to a fault. So everything's about (laughs) 
our individual whatever. And we think of imagination that way too. But what Taylor is showing when he talks about social imaginaries is that even our individual imaginations are shaped and formed and informed and fueled by all of the visions and images and metaphors and stories that are in our culture. I mean, think of a mm -hmm. meme. I, I, I Someday I want to write a book about memes. If, yes. <laughs> if you, you know, memes work or don't work because the people who see them get all of the cultural illusions and stories that are accumulated in that little meme. Like they know what, what film it came from or what lines it's quoting. And if you don't, <laughs> you don't get it. But if you do, you get it all. And so like the, yeah. a meme is a really good example, I think, of, of a little social imaginary um, that people mm -hmm. share or don't share. And we all, we exist in social imaginaries, including evangelicals. Yeah. And so I think looking at that culturally and historically, at one time, the evangelical imagination would have been the dominant or the pervading imagination that was shaping culture. But now we find ourselves in a wild west, so to speak, you know, and, and so talk to me some about that process. Yes, that, that is such a good way of putting it. And um, I open the book by talking about the genesis of this idea for it, which began in my classroom where I teach a lot of Victorian literature. And, and the Victorian age was essentially made by the evangelical movement from the century before. Everything good and bad, like, I mean, evangelicals were, they wanted to increase um, social progress. They were for animal welfare and for abolishing the slave trade. Now I'm talking about in England, America was a little different, but but they really brought a lot of, um, they, they wanted improvements and, and rights of the individual. And so all of this informed the Victorian age. And yet, too much of even a good thing can turn bad. So mm. in Victorianism, you see like, you know, there's an emphasis by evangelicals and then Victorians on the family, which I think is really good. But that emphasis got kind of ossified into like putting women on a pedestal and making mm -hmm. them sort of the goddess of the household or literally the angel of the house in, in one poem that I talk about. And that's really not good. I mean, I don't want to be an angel. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so, but what you just described was that was the moment or the time when evangelical, the evangelical imagination dominated and it was just assumed. And now we mm -hmm. live in a time in America anyway, where that evangelical imagination is less and less dominant. I mean, we're actually just simply joining most other Christians who've lived throughout human history who weren't the dominant <laughs> culture, right? Um, but right. a lot of people are nervous about this and upset. And so I think a lot of the tension and the conflict and the polarization um, that we're seeing politically and in the church and outside the church and in our families, a lot of that is because this our this uh, social imaginary is changing and shifting and people mm -hmm. don't know what to, mm -hmm. to do with that. And I don't know, know that I do either, but I think we have to at least first recognize that we are driven by an imaginary. Yes. It makes me think because at one point, culture would have been created by locale or proximity. It would have been created by family ties. It would have been created by religious ties. And now in the digital age, the technological age, and, and kind of where we are, the geography of the soul, so to speak, has completely 
changed and altered. And I think that even when we think about the imagination and metaphors and symbols, even particular meanings Mm -hmm. have changed. And the metaphors that once meant one thing to us now mean something else. And I think that I have perceived a real loss of meaning for some people. Yeah, even in in our communities, it's like what what does this mean anymore? And I'm I'm curious for you if that's part of what you're addressing in your book is how the metaphors and the images and the symbols and the things that once gave us a social coherence, mm. those things are not as binding as maybe they once were. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. Um, I mean, part of what it means to live in this kind of global village created by the internet and the digital age is that um, everything is fragmented and disembodied. Now, there, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. I'm not, you know, sure. you know, like, I mean, I, I liken the, the, I liken digital technology to the invention of the printing press, which changed, mm-hmm. <laughs> changed the world. Um, yes. It brought, brought widespread literacy. It brought us books, which I love so much, but it was very chaotic and confusing. Mm-hmm. People were publishing things that were seditious and heretical and people were burned at the stake when they were discovered to be the authors or put in prison and all of these things. It was a chaotic time, mm-hmm. but I'm so glad for the gift of the printing press and for the books yes, absolutely. and yeah, the literacy. Well, the digital, we're, li- we're reliving that kind of moment. Um, And so we are losing a lot and it's disorienting. And even just that common language that you talked about, I mean, a very on a very small scale, we sometimes fight over the metaphors that we use or the labels or terms that we might use for a person or a group of people. Mm-hmm. And people get very upset about that. But words are powerful and meaningful. And when, when someone says this word or this term does harm because it carries all this baggage, we have to understand that that's, language is that powerful. And so yes. it can give and it can take away. And we have to be mindful of all that it, that it can do and realize we're living in this very transitory time where it, again it does feel like we're losing a lot but we also have a lot to gain mm-hmm. and so we need to pay attention to the metaphors that we use and to the stories and images that we fill our minds with and and that other people share and tell because we can learn from the way they use language and from the the images that they share. Uh, We don't have to understand. We can be honest and say, I don't understand this kind of art or I don't understand this kind of music (laughs) or or whatever, but we can say, "But, but the people creating it are saying something with it. What are they saying? What are some of your thoughts on the health of our imagination and how can we cultivate healthy imaginations, especially in a world where there are so many images coming at us all the time, you know, whether we want them or not, we we do live in a very visual culture. Mm -hmm. What are some of your thoughts on how we can cultivate a healthy imagination? No, I, I love that question. And I think the ground for that answering that question is again to reiterate that we all use our imaginations and we have imaginations whether we're thinking about that or we're aware of it or not and so then to realize that we are you know it's really just a matter of being more aware of the imagination that we're using all the time and mm-hmm. then be aware of as, as you you're asking what we what we're 
feeding it, how, how we're shaping it. I mean, if you think of it as like a muscle and, you know, a muscle that you're working, I mean, if you, you know, I, I go to the gym, I, you can't tell I work out, but I do. Um, <laughs> but I have a trainer. I have a trainer because if it were just me, I'd be doing everything the wrong way and I'd be working out, but I'd be kind of malforming myself because I'm not doing it correctly or using the correct weights. And imagination, everything about us works the same way. Our appetites and our, our as well as our imaginative capacity. So we live in an age that many are saying is defined by an attention economy. Mm-hmm. And so everything out there is, is poised to make money by getting our attention, whether it's a click mm-hmm. or, you know, a, or a scroll or, or whatever it is. And so we have to just be aware that, that our attention is money, but our attention really belongs to us and it is ours to steward. And so we need to be mindful of where we're putting our attention, how much time we're putting that attention to. It's so easy. I mean, I am a lover of books and reading. I used to spend Mm -hmm. hours reading books and now I spend hours trolling, scrolling Twitter, not trolling, scrolling Twitter. (laughs) Uh, I knew it was you. Maybe once in a while trolling. (laughs) And so it's so hard to fight what is, you know, grabbing my attention and is, and is the easy thing. So we just, we have to be mindful and intentional about it. And, and once we do that, then we can, then we ask the question, okay, so what do I want to do? Well, I mean, we can read books, we can look at art, we can, we can, if we're sitting at home on the couch, we can watch a beautifully crafted film mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of like the Hallmark one. Um, we can, we can watch one that is a little bit you know, jarring or not quite, you know, clear, tied up in a, in a tidy bow at the end to get us thinking instead of passing the two hours watching whatever else. Um, in nature, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I have no technological skills whatsoever, but I have an iPhone and I have a filter and I have turned myself into a little photographer just by <laughs> noticing the things around me when I go out on a run or a walk and then just being a little artful and how I crop it or whatever. And so we all have so many opportunities to pay attention well, to make a little mm-hmm. bit of art in the limited way that we can, or to just pay attention to other people's art. Like people are making art all around us. You don't have to be an artist to engage in art and give your attention to it. And so if it's not a habit, for some of us, it's, you know, it's a habit, it's a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, you can still, you can build it in just by making better choices with your attention. Well, I want to ask you a very foundational question about your book. And we mentioned that the evangelical movement is in a time of crisis is the way you identify it in the book. And, you know, you're talking about it through the lens of images and metaphors, but talk to me about what you perceive as sort of the foundational problem or maybe the fault line that that you see as underpinning that entire crisis? Mm, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the big questions. <laughs> oh, well, you know, and, and I'm not even sure I say this in the book. So this is like a bonus, I guess, because um, I 
you know, I, when you're writing a book, when I'm writing a book anyway, I don't really know where it's going to lead. And then I get to the end and it's due and I'm like, and I could start all over again with, with the things yes. I've learned from the process <laughs> of writing. But, um, that's a really good and important question. And, and I, I think I would just say, and this isn't unique to evangelicalism. I mean, it's just part of being human, but I think mm -hmm. that we, you know, are just far too shaped and formed and influenced by the things of this world mm -hmm. rather than the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a pat easy answer, um, <laughs> but that is the antithesis of what Christianity is supposed to be, right? It's not just like, oops, but it really is. And so, I mean, that's, that's, and evangelicalism is particularly prone to that error, I think, because it is very much a kind of populist, transdenominational movement that was not rooted in a particular church or denomination. It's just a culture, it is a cultural phenomenon. And so it just mm -hmm. tends to be more influenced by culture, which is good and bad because I don't think that culture is bad. I mean, I don't think we can avoid sure. it, you know, but right. I think <laughs> we're just not aware of it. I think again, and that's, you know, I start out the book talking about the unexamined assumptions that we have that are kind of like the structures underneath the surface of, a, of the house that we don't yes. think about until we get a problem. And then it's like, oh, we've got to fix something. What do we fix? And we have to start peeling away the layers to find out what's rotting underneath. That's where we are. And I think the rottenness underneath is just being too enamored with this world instead of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the world of God. Well, as you're talking about how images and metaphors have shaped the evangelical movement, I can't help but think of the role of the artist in the midst of this and how uh, even earlier you mentioned that some images and metaphors and symbols that may have meant something at one time, well, now they're kind of triggering some things that weren't originally intended. They're having a different effect mm -hmm. than maybe they did at one time. For me, that makes me think, this is the moment for the artist yes. to emerge. It's time for new metaphors, new symbols, new language, new words to fuel our way out of this crisis. And, and I, of course, I think of the parables of Jesus, and, and you could probably speak much deeper into this than, than I, but I know that some of what Jesus spoke was familiar to the culture, but then there was this twist, <laughs> this unexpected ending, or this, this story that the culture had never heard before quite the way he told it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of see that as like, that's the invitation for the artist in the midst of this crisis or in the midst of this moment. I like to think of the crisis as an opportunity. I'm sure you do too in some ways, you know, but, but I, I don't know, what does that make you think when I, when I bring the artist and, and the new metaphors into this conversation? No, I love that. And you went exactly where I was going in my mind. So that's, that's amazing because, <laughs> because there, you know, because of my role as a teacher and my role is kind of a translator, like someone, mm -hmm. um, you know, commented to me recently that I kind that in this book, I kind of translate this 900 book by Charles Taylor for, you know, a more general reading audience. And, and so, yes, that's my role. And so, and I love art. I love you know, high art, low art, medium art, all, all the art. But sometimes, you know, so I think as artists, artists, you, we mm -hmm. have to 
keep our audience in mind, and we all have different audiences. So there are going to be artists who are prophetic and who lead mm-hmm. the way. Um, and and most people aren't going to get them. Maybe no one's going to get them. And God bless them because we need those prophets. Mm-hmm. And then there are artists who can meet a different audience. I think, for example, now I haven't watched this show, but I've, I've you know, a lot of people are talking about it. It's The Chosen. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are watching it. And I'm seeing people who seem to be expressing a greater appreciation for art mm-hmm. than they would have before. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like an art that meets people where they are, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not where I am, but, you know. Sure. But it, but it, it does. And so... So if that helps them to appreciate art in general more, then that that's good. But because of what you said about G- Jesus, you're exactly right. He used metaphors that could meet most people where they were, <laughs> and they spoke great truth. And then he had this uh, these other ones that like <laughs> that not only did they not make sense, but we don't like them. <laughs> like you know the 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 parable of the of the worker, the wages of the workers, right or whatever. Like nobody likes that yes. one or understands it. And so he is a perfect model because he uses he uses illustrations and metaphors and parables and and sayings that that mm-hmm. on one level make sense and others don't. And and then he he does feel free to say what let those who have ears hear and not everyone Mm -hmm. is going to hear them Um, but i think we have to know for you know we're not jesus obviously but we also have to know (laughs) we also have to know when our message is not going to be heard by most people and be okay with that but then some other artists maybe just need to meet be meet the people more where they are and help them to see we need them all Uh, and we need to we need to support all of us and help all of us in our different endeavors too. But yes. you're absolutely right. This is the time for the artists and the mystics mm-hmm. and yes. mysticism. Well, I want to talk to you about a particular section in your book that is fascinating to me. And it's a section that you have titled Evangelical Material Culture and Protestant iconoclasm. And this is very interesting to me, particularly because of, you know, Protestantism's uh, rejection of images that we see in history. And of course, coming from an artistic background, this has always been a very fascinating and, and sometimes frustrating subject for me. But I'd love to hear you speak into this a bit about the iconoclasm of the Protestant movement and evangelicalism and and how all that meshes together. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, we all know that the Protestant Reformation was over the Word of God, right? So, the written capital W Word, and that Protestantism, at the very least, privileges Word over image, and at, you know, Mm -hmm. at its more extreme, destroys the (laughs) statues, right, and the icons. Mm -hmm. And so, we have this, for me, as a very decided Protestant of whatever flavor, you know, I exist in this tension because I too do privilege the word over the image. And yet I love Mm -hmm. images. I love art. And I don't think, you know, I think the Bible, the word is clear that it is both, right? Because Mm -hmm. Jesus is the word capital W, but he also 
is incarnated and is a it, the image of God walking around, talking, being able to be touched, telling Thomas, touch my side, you know, and um, <laughs> being carried in the womb of Mary and then being carried by Mary in her arms when he's taken off the cross. So he's a very embodied word. And so this tension is is central to the Christian faith. And mm -hmm. I think in our traditions, again, especially as Protestant evangelical, is that in that tradition, we again, our, our inclination is to privilege the, the word and to pay less attention to the image. And what I draw out in the book is how, well, even if you set up a little plain and simple country chapel that has no stained glass windows and has no paintings on the wall or statues, like you still have an aesthetic. You are still experiencing mm -hmm. that space visually, and that visual space is affecting you aesthetically. That's right. There's just no way around it. And so we just have to say, okay, so, oh, so what is happening here? What's happening here that is different from what's happening in, you know, a Catholic cathedral? Because both are aesthetic experiences. It's just like I mentioned the imagination before. We might not be aware of our imagination working, but that's. A limitation of our awareness, not our imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, getting closer to the end of your book, you begin talking about reformed imaginations. And you know, you talk about the loss of language, the loss of meaning, whether through overfamiliarity or a lack of real familiarity in the first place. And I like that you made that distinction. Um, is it heart? what you're wanting to help uncover in the book. And you said, what is imagination, but an opening of the eyes of our heart? And I think that ties in with your last comment, but talk to me about this imagination being an opening of the eyes of our hearts. Well, of course, you know, I'm quoting as a scripture and then a song. I can't even hear that phrase without sort of hearing, hearing the song in my head. <laughs> and I love, you know, that's a, Again, a metaphor, right? And it's one that for many of us is very familiar, like open the eyes of our heart. But if you stop and dwell on it and think about it, right, our heart is the center of our emotional and aesthetic experience, the desires that drive us beneath the surface. And again, that's what the project of this whole book is like opening our eyes to those things that are beneath the surface, our desires, our visions, the, the metaphors, the stories that propel us. Like if we open our eyes to them, then we can be aware. And some of those are good. Some of those are good visions and stories and metaphors that tell true, good and beautiful things. But some of them are deformed or they're false. Mm-hmm. And if we're not aware of those stories that are driving us, then we we just have so much room to err, not just as individuals, but collectively. Yes. And of course, that's that's the whole focus of this book. It's not just our individual imaginations, but it's how an entire culture has been formed and fueled by images and metaphors that have good in them, but have over time become either emaciated or um, distorted because of what they leave out. Mm -hmm. Well, one final question for you then is, you know, as we've been talking about the imagination, the evangelical movement historically, and there's so much in the book we didn't even touch on as I'm just, I've got the book in my hand and I love all the references you make. You, I mean, you've got Mumford and Sons in here. You've got Johnny Cash in here. I'm like, man, Karen and I should hang out because we're like swimming in the same pool here, mm -hmm. I think, with a lot of the artists that you've mentioned. And which, by the way, I have... 
Taylor's book on my shelf, but I have not made it through that beast of a book, you know? It's a beast. Uh, Yeah. So now maybe uh, your commentary on it will help me get there. But I guess the, the question I'm getting at with this is, what are some of your hopes for a way forward from here? You know, uh, and I know we talked about the role of the artist and, and different things like that, but when we think about a cultural identity and how there's so much fracture, so much fragmentation, so much polarization, and how there's in many ways a lack of shared commonality of symbols and, and, and things like that, I don't mean to sound dire or apocalyptic or hopeless, but I do want to ask the question, do you have a sense of of what you think the body of believers or Jesus followers, what role or what positive role we can play in moving forward to move beyond a state of crisis? That's a big question, but I'm going to give my best shot at it because, you know, we do need to, we're all obligated to at least try to find some answers. And, you know, so I would say that if I were to define sort of what characterizes evangelicalism overall, it would be that it is very much a product of modernity. And mm-hmm. modernity is is very character, much characterized for good and bad. These are you know things that are are positive and negative by by institutions and by empire building and mm-hmm. and scientific rationalism and categories and and some of those things we've talked about before. That's what modernity is really. And as we reach you know late modernity or what some people call post modernity, we're seeing those things crumble. And they do have good in them. They have done good, yet they've kind of outgrown themselves, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what's been lost in the empire building and in the institution building and in the power brokerage and the, you know, the the political power mongering, what's been lost Mm. is Jesus. Like Mm. I myself, (laughs) who have been a Christian for the vast majority of my life and who has never not loved Jesus, I'm finding that I lost who Jesus Mm. was and is um, in this culture. And so I think, I think, and this maybe this is the most mystical thing of all, right, is to (laughs) follow the way, the capital W way of Jesus to cling to him, to be caught up with him, which is, you know, I say in the book, that's the real meaning of the word rapture is to be caught, oh, I love it. caught yes. up with Christ, to be so caught up with him right now, right here, that all the other stuff just falls away. It's, a, you know, we live here and we can, we, you know, we, can, we don't want to escape this earthly realm too soon. He put us here for a reason and we should enjoy it and celebrate it and see the beauty and all that. But if nothing else matters, more than Christ, then I think we've found the answer. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I am a true fan of your work, of your thought, your writing, and I'm looking forward to sharing this book with our audience. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by Somewhere at Sea. If you'd like to go deeper into these conversations on art, faith, and culture, see the show notes of this episode or visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Karen on her favorite Christian mystic, Lady Julian of Norwich. 
We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. <laughs>